Beloved congregation of the Lord, turn with me again to 1 Peter, the second chapter, and the seventh verse. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. Well, what incredible blessings does God shower upon his people. To be a true Christian is to bestow, bestow the greatest of honors and privileges that can be known by mortal creatures. Here in the second chapter of Peter's first epistle, we see how those humble pilgrims scattered about Asia Minor, living in poverty, living under persecution, were yet afforded such high titles by the apostle through the inspiration of the spirit. They are that spiritual house, that temple of the living God being built up unto the glorious praise of the most high God. They are this royal priesthood sanctified in Christ Jesus to offer forth spiritual sacrifices of praise. To be a Christian, you see, is a holy calling, a precious calling, a glorious calling. To be a Christian as one who is adopted into the family of God, redeemed by the blood of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, it is an unspeakable gift and privilege. And where we see the Christian life spoken of in such high and lofty ways, it ought to immediately banish from our minds any kind of mechanical, formalistic, or ritualistic vision of Christianity. As though the things of salvation consisted in merely coming into a building, merely going through various rituals, obeying certain rules and traditions, perish the thought. God forbid, dear ones, we are called unto joys unspeakable and full of glory. And nowhere is this more clearly set forth than in the verse which we have just read. He speaks unto you, therefore, which believe. And so we understand, don't we, that believer and Christian are synonymous. Show me a man who does not believe, and I will show you not a Christian, but an infidel, not a child of God, but a child of the devil. A believer is a Christian, and it's not a faith or a belief, merely in some truths on the page, not merely a belief in a historical account of events, nor merely in the doctrines of the Bible. No. This faith, as the needy soul rests in and receives Christ Jesus, is the bond of eternal life, joining us unto the great head and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says here unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. Here is the inseparable companion of true faith, 
The believer accounts the Lord Jesus Christ as precious. Now we've seen this word precious before in our study of 1 Peter in the first chapter in the seventh verse, seventh verse. The apostle writes to these Christians that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. These poor people looked upon by the world as those who were nothings and nobodies. Yet they had something more precious than all the gold in the world could buy. Faith in the Savior. You see, this concept of precious, it speaks of something to be given honor because of the value in the eye of the beholder. Now, it's not merely a subjective thing, not only in our minds, as though two people could go through an art gallery and say, I think there's something good in that painting. Another says that there is nothing in it. And it might all just be left to our opinion. Well, even beauty and art doesn't work that way. There are things that are objectively beautiful by the standards of the laws of the universe. But we don't think about it that way. We just think it's all in your opinion. But where we speak of the eye of the beholder, we speak rather of the one who correctly esteems what is truly valuable. Earlier on in this uh, paragraph that we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 6, wherefore, also it is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Or again in verse 4, to whom coming is unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. The great foundation of the church, the person of Jesus Christ, our mediator, is accounted precious by God because he is objectively most precious, worthy of honor, greatly to be esteemed in value and worth. God looks upon his son and says, Behold my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, is our esteem for Christ consistent with God's esteem for Christ? Is the state of our hearts and souls toward the Savior what it should be as befits true Christians? You notice the whole verse lays out that contrast, doesn't it? There is this separation and dividing line between those who are truly brought unto a saving knowledge of the Lord and those who reject him. Unto you, verse 7, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of of the corner and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, 
whereunto also they were appointed. Much more we will say about that in future messages, but suffice it to say for the moment that Christ Jesus is precious unto his people. And this is one of the true marks of the true Christian, that they esteem the true Christ revealed in the Holy Scriptures with that value, worth, esteem, and love that belongs only unto the children of God. This is what is set forth here. First, I want to begin by explaining this in general and then supplying a particular illustration of it. Those will be our considerations as we focus upon our precious Jesus this morning. First, let me speak about it in general. You understand, children, that this is one of the constant themes in Jesus' own preaching. You see, Jesus, when he wanted to get something across that was really important, he would speak in a parable. A parable, you see, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's a way in which the truths of salvation can be understandable by the likes of you and me. I want you to listen to some of the parables that he spoke in Matthew 13, in verses 44 to 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which, when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth the field. So that's the, the first parable I want to say. There you have someone, they come across a field, and what do they find in the field? There in the dirt or in the grass is this pearl. They look at that shiny, round, pure object, and they see that is more valuable than everything else that is in this field, and it is worth buying the whole field for. So they go out and they buy it. Not only so, but he sells all that he has. Can you imagine that, children? Imagine you were to take all your toys. Imagine you were to take your house and all your clothing, and you'd say, I'm going to sell it all just so I can have this pearl. Well, if that was just an ordinary pearl, you might say, that doesn't seem like a very good bargain. It might look good. It might be a nice thing to have, but really worth everything? When we're talking about Jesus Christ and his salvation, that's literally true. He is worth everything. That's why right after that, in verse 46, in Matthew 13, verse 46, he says again, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man, which seeketh goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So we are to be like that merchant man, aren't we? We are to be seeking out that pearl. That pearl, which Jesus says represents himself. That's really the thing that the Bible is meant to reveal to us. That all your priorities, all of your goals... All the things that you think you want and need, they are nothing compared to your need for the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be a thing? I could take a piece of paper 
And I could ask you to write down everything you think you need this morning, all your cares, all your worries. And what I might do after that is I might take that and rip it up and throw it in the garbage and say, no, what you need is only one thing above all other things, to know and to love and account precious the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a terrible thing, you see, when we don't have what our fathers call a felt Christ. If you yourself would go through the Christian life not experiencing the joys of Christ in your soul, delighting in him, treasuring him, keeping him close unto you in prayer and in communion with him, and that is, at the very least, living as a very weak and cold Christian, or else no Christian at all. It is perilously, perilously close to what the prophet Isaiah spoke about, where he spoke about the Jews in the days of Christ's appearing. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Well, that's the question. Maybe you say, yes, I know I'm a sinner. Yes, heaven sounds like a good idea, certainly better than the alternative. But do you see beauty in Christ? Do you value him not only for what he does for you, but who he is in himself? The great message of the Apostle Paul was consistently that in the preaching of Christ accurately, where he is received in our hearts and souls, he reveals the glories of God unto us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. Let me help you understand this. If you are unconverted this morning, then everything that I speak unto you, it might penetrate slightly into your understanding. You might even understand that all is not well with you. But ultimately, the full measure of your condition is hidden because Christ himself is hidden to you. If indeed you knew something of the incomparable beauty and preciousness of the Lord Jesus and did not know anything about it at all, you ought to get down on your knees and weep right here in the worship service. But if that is not your condition, if you find yourself cold and indifferent to the things of Christ, it is not because there's anything defective in him, but something defective in you. It's hidden from you, the power of the devil and your own sinful heart. They have trapped you in this prison of sin and darkness, lest the light of Christ Jesus and the gospel break through and bring you unto the liberty of salvation. So these things would point us as we consider the matter generally that we need a felt Christ. We need a Christ who is precious unto our souls. If we are not those who account Christ precious, indeed, we cannot even count ourselves believers or true Christians. This is the teaching of our text. 
How desperately, therefore, must we press forward in our spiritual disciplines in these things. We come here to preaching. Why? That we may say we may see Jesus. Not that we may learn innumerable things about the Bible here and there is an interesting fact. No, it all centers upon this. We need to know him. We need to have our hearts warmed and brightened and enlivened by the knowledge of Christ personally, experientially. This is as we consider the matter generally. Now I want to consider the matter specifically and illustrate it from another portion of Scripture, which I think is very suitable to what Peter is talking about, very compatible with his overall point, and that would be the Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Now, this is certainly one of the most precious portions of all of Song of Solomon, and I don't want to belabor the point, but I want to briefly summarize how it is you can profit from this chapter of the Bible. Like all of the Song of Solomon, it's sometimes misunderstood and misapplied. And many people even would take it to be about some kind of romantic relationship between a man and a woman. But I think that Dr. Gill sums it up very well as to how to understand this book. He says, the whole is figurative and allegorical, expressing in a variety of lively metaphors the love, union, and communion between Christ and his church, setting forth the the different frames, cases, and circumstances of believers in this life so that they can be in no case and condition spiritual whatever. But there is something in this song suitable to them, which serves much to recommend it and shows the excellency of it and that it justly claims the title it bears, the Song of Songs, the most excellent. What is Dr. Gill saying? He's saying if you are really a true believer, you might have strong faith or weak faith. You might be at the beginning of the Christian life in great immaturity, or indeed, you may have progressed to the point where you've attained more of the knowledge of Christ than you once did. You may be beset by great temptations and afflictions, or you may be in the joys of a close walk with the Lord. But no matter where you may find yourself this morning. If you are a Christian, there's something that will connect with your experience. This is why expositors have called it the Holy of Holies of the whole Bible. The book of the Song of Solomon is about that intimate fellowship between the believer and his Savior. But I would say as well that even if you do have a genuine taste of the Lord, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is gracious, you may still struggle to rightly apply it, even if you understand it's ultimately about Christ and his relationship to the believer. Then you might still struggle because many of the illusions and images 
They're really drawn from the whole history of the people of Israel. If you want to understand Song of Solomon, a really good thing to do would be spend some time in a book like Leviticus or Exodus, where it talks a lot about the priests and the temple and the land. It might be good to spend some time talking, uh, reading rather, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, where it sets forth the relationship between the godly king as the representative of the Lord unto the people of Israel. Um, as I've studied this book more over the years, I've grown to appreciate those people like Martin Luther and our own Dr. Jerry Bilkis at PRTS, who especially point this as the key to rightly interpreting this book, that many of the things that are used to explain the relationship of Christ to his people are by, um, for, by uh, especially picturing that in terms of the relationship between the Davidic line, the kings of Israel, to their people. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 34, at the close of David's life, as he gives his last words, he says, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even as a morning without clouds, as the tender grass spring out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Now there it's very poetic language, but it's all it's describing is the godly rule of a righteous king over his people. Now, we don't have many righteous rulers in our own day, so it's hardest to understand how blessing it would be to have a king rule over our own nation that was zealous for the purity of religion and the justice of the law of God. But that was how David was characterized. It was how all the godly kings were characterized under the old covenant. And so the central character of the Song of Solomon is such a righteous king. He rules over his people in righteousness, purity, and truth, and he brings them unto the presence of God. In a measure, the kings of Israel were such representatives of God. They were such righteous rulers if they were godly. But now we see that the true king, the true son of David, he emerges on the scene in this book. And he is set forth here in all his glory and splendor and his blessing to his people. Now you're in the fifth chapter. It's important to understand something of the narrative structure that is happening. In verse 1, you have the Lord Jesus Christ calling unto his church, his spouse, his bride. And he beckons her unto himself. And the picture is that he is there at the door of her house and he is knocking at the door, as we see also in the book of Revelation, as Jesus Christ knocks on the door of his church. But in the early verses, you see how it is that the church or the bride here, she is lazy, she is sleepy, she is slow 
and getting to the door. There's so much trouble and difficulty in answering the summons of her Lord. And this is describing that experience that may not be foreign to you as well. You may know what it is to have Christ calling you earnestly in the word unto fellowship with himself and rather than treasuring the Lord in your soul, rather than communing with him in prayer and in reading of the scriptures. Instead, you busy yourself with this world or even the pleasures of sin, and so he withdraws himself. And so it was in this case, in verse 6, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone, and my soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, and he gave me no answer. You see, the Christian life is not always one of enjoying that unbroken communion with the Lord where we feel his presence and delight in his joys in the way we should. Sometimes there are seasons where we feel forsaken by him. And yet all the while, even those feelings of of desiring his presence, they speak of this reality which we are considering, that he is precious unto your soul. I would say this, that if your Christian life and experience is really a straight and a clear road, that you have no disturbances, you have no difficulties, you have no challenges, you may want to actually check the pulse of your soul, as it were. Is there really life there? Is there a genuine relationship with the Lord. If you've been married any length of time, surely you understand this, that your relationship to your spouse is dynamic, always changing. There's always new things to experience, new things to learn. There's possibilities that we offend our spouse and have to confess those things and and make amends. Well, in our relationship with the Lord, there's also this dynamic quality to it that's beautifully set forth in this book. I want to especially focus on later on where the bride here, she is seeking to proclaim her love for Christ. In verse 8, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if ye find my beloved, that ye tell him that I am sick of love. Now, children, it doesn't mean that this a woman that she's sick of loving Christ. No, the, the point here is that she's so overwhelmed with love for Christ that what she wants is to be with him. Maybe if you've been in love, you know what it's like. You want to be with that person. You want to be close to them. Well, so also here with the soul that knows Christ. We want to be close to Christ. Now, the, what follows here is there's the question from those whom the woman speaks to. Verse 9, what is thy beloved more than another beloved? O thou fairest among women, what is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? And these, you could imagine, would be maybe less experienced Christians, less experienced people in the ways of grace. They're trying to understand by this one who has a special closeness to the Lord, what is so glorious about him? What is so precious about him? What is in him 
that is different than any other. And so you might have a child that tries to ask the question of his Christian mom and dad, why is it so important to know Jesus? Why is it more important than being rich or being popular or anything else? And where would you begin? Where would you begin to try to explain to someone like that what is found in Christ? It's a daunting thing. But here we have one of the most remarkable unfoldings of what is glorious about Christ. Let me begin by looking here in verse 9 and 10. What is thy beloved more than any other beloved, O thou fairest among women? What is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest of 10,000. Well, the last part of that verse is easy enough to understand. You take 10,000 others that would be competitors for Christ, and they don't measure up at all. He is the greatest. You know, that is so important to us. We sometimes put Jesus on an equal scale with all the other joys of life, with all the other priorities and things we have to do. But for the true Christian, Jesus is above all. First comes this. We need to consecrate our whole selves unto him. We must value that time that we treasure with him. We must avoid anything that would offend him. For he is above all. And anything that would compete with him is an enemy of our soul. But what about the first part? Of the verse, my beloved is white and ruddy. Well, it's actually uh, frequently, frequently used kind of language in this book of Song of Solomon. For example, Song of Solomon 2, verse 1, there the Lord Jesus says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Well, you know, a rose is red and uh, a lily is white. So there's Redness or ruddiness and whiteness. Now, how would we understand that? Well, obviously, the whiteness would describe the incredible purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the one reason to count him precious, surely. He never knew sin. He's the spotless Lamb of God. In his deity, there is no darkness in him, for he is light. In his humanity, he is the only son of Adam who is uncorrupted by the least sin. And so there's no defect in him whatsoever. But also he's red. He's red. And this language of ruddiness or red, it's used to describe one of the greatest kings of Israel. Indeed, the greatest except the Lord Jesus himself, that of David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 12 to 30. And David gathered, excuse me, uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 11. That's what I'm thinking of. 1 Samuel 16, verse 11. And this is where uh, the prophet Samuel, he goes to all the sons of Jesse and he singles out David among them. So in 1 Samuel 16, verse 11, and Samuel said unto Jesse, are there, are here all thy children? And he said, there remainest yet the youngest and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, send and fetch him 
for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look at. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. Now what is in this fact that David uh, was of a ruddy countenance? He spent his days in the sun. He was a healthy, vigorous young man who had that redness in his complexion. Well, it speaks of his strength and his suitableness to be the king of Israel. That was the essential uh, argument of both 1st, 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings, that in David you have one who is suitable unto all the needs of the kingdom, both to carry out the tasks of the Lord and also to be strong in leading his people. This is why it speaks of his readiness in connection with his beautiful countenance. That the whole people were to fall in love with David. The whole nation was to be carried up with this. That this was the chosen anointed of the Lord. This is also to be how we think of the Lord Jesus. He is that one who is elect, chosen by God, precious, to be the greatest of all kings. He is to rule and reign over our souls. And we are to see in him not only the purity of whiteness, but also the suitability of his ruddiness. That is what we see there in verse 9 and 10. But um, now let me read further here in verse 11. There we read, His head is as the most fine gold. Now, children, as we've been uh, uh, considering and different ways over the years, the stories of Israel. Maybe this is connected with you, that gold is very important in the whole history of the kings. Gold is what ordain, uh, adorns the king's palace. And that's what reminds you that the presence of God is with his people. Gold is what adorns the temple, reminding you that the worship of God is acceptable. The worship of God by his people is accepted by him. Gold is especially connected with divinity. And this is why the king would have a crown of gold placed upon his head. This is set forth, for example, here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 29 where he, David, fights the children of Ammon and takes the king's crown and puts on his own head. 2 Samuel 12, verse 29 and 30, David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. He took their king's crown from off his head, the weight whereof was a talent of gold with the precious stones, and it was set on David's head. He brought forth the spoil of the city in great abundance. What are we to make of this fact that his head is gold? Well, I think this speaks of the fact that Christ's kingdom especially centers on his divine majesty. For you see how this is described in Isaiah 
28, verse 5, In that day shall the Lord of hosts be a crown of glory, and for a diadem of beauty unto the residue of his people. This is why, if we would think about the Song of Solomon, this kind of delight could never be properly directed towards any mere king. No, our hearts must be swallowed up in the Lord of lords and the King of kings, the one who is worthy of all worship, for he created us. He is before all worlds, and in him is every beautiful perfection. Let us never neglect the deity of Christ, his godness, his almighty power, which is inseparably joined to his humanity and ensures that in his kingdom of salvation there is such a perfection of power, righteousness, and holiness that we can never properly fathom it nor plumb the depths of it. This is why that the true accounting of Christ is precious brings us to that acquaintance of the one who is the Holy One of Israel, before whom we bow to the dust. The experience of the Christian is one of unbroken awe and wonder toward him. But if you see that his head as gold is to elevate you to such a sight of his wondrous perfections of his deity, you see also that this section of Second of uh, Song of Solomon 5 also speaks of his body. In verse 14, his belly or his body is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. And I think this is the point at which it explains the king as a kind of priestly role as well. All the kings, if you trace it out over the history of Israel. They had a kind of priestly role as they interceded for the people, as they sought to preserve the purity of true worship. But here you have one who truly brings on board that role of a priest as well as a king. Where you see that his belly or his body has these sapphires, which speak of precious stones, and bright ivory, again, the whiteness of purity. I think John Gill rightly points out that this is an allusion to his priesthood. John Gill writes here, the allusion may be to the embroidered coat of the high priest and the ephod with the breastplate, in which were 12 precious stones, and among these, the sapphires, in which represent Christ as the great high priest, bearing all his elect upon his heart in heaven, having entered there in their name to take possession of it for them until they are brought into the actual enjoyment of it. Does this not make your heart sing, Christian? To see that he is adorned as a priest with all these stones that represent his people, and he, as your high priest, has come into that heavenly abode in order to prepare a place for you, where you see that Christ is so well disposed to sinners such as us, to account us to be the ornaments that he uh, brings upon his very body. Then we see that he is truly God with us. God of God, to be worthy of our worship, yet a true mediator 
who has come in our humanity. We see not only so, but also in some of the other things that are described here. In verse 12, his eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. Well, you know about doves, don't you, children? You know that after the great storm and flood in which God wiped out all of the nations for their sin, God preserved alive Noah and his family together with the animals in the ark. And you know how it was that he let out those three birds and it was only when that dove found a place in which to rest that the Lord, that, uh, the Lord was communicating to Noah that it was now safe to leave the ark. There is something about this dove that speaks of the uh, cessation of God's judgment and the, the blessing of God that comes after that judgment passing. Or you think, of course, about the expression of the Holy Spirit appearing as a dove upon the Lord Jesus when he is baptized by John there in the Jordan River. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. And so it is that the presence of Christ, particularly by his spirit, is spoken of here. So also the rivers of waters washed with milk and fitly set. What is all this describing? His eyes. His eyes. With the doves, the waters, the milk. It is purity, tenderness, kindness. The eyes, you see, are a window unto the soul. Jesus Christ looks upon his people not with wrath and scorn and anger and hatred, but with great tenderness. Sometimes you may look upon yourself, Christian, and you see so much that is loathsome, foul, and putrid. You see so much that is worthy only of hell. But Christ would reveal himself also in this way unto you, that his eyes of compassion and gentleness look out upon his people. In Matthew 11, verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In the eyes of Christ, we can surely see that there is infinite grace, mercy to be found there. How precious is he, how glorious it is that we have not a Savior who will deal with us after our sin, but according to his bowels of mercy. Other descriptions here especially focus on his face. So in verse 13, his cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. And then verse 15, his countenance is as Lebanon excellent as the cedars. So you remember that language of countenance, children, from our closing blessing that we often use. From Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord, Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Countenance just means face. And so it is 
that the acquaintance of the believer with Christ is, as it were, coming face to face with him. Whereas countenance comes close, it is his face shining upon us. The emphasis in verse 13 and 15 is the sweetness of his face. There is something delightful about the presence of Christ. It can't really be described, can it? Unless you know him personally, you will never understand how great it is to be embraced in his love. Here where it describes it as Lebanon, uh, there's an important connection there, which Dr. Gill points out as well. Lebanon was a goodly mountain on the north side of Judea, high and pleasant, and set with fruitful and fragrant trees, and made a very delightful appearance. The height of the mountain of Lebanon shows the awe and wonder that we experience in the face of Christ. The fruitfulness of the trees there, it describes the way in which the sight of Christ bears forth much fruit in our lives of faith, hope, and love. The pleasantness of that place describes the joys of being in the Lord's presence. These are what is described here. I mean, also speak of, uh, of his lips. Verse 13, his lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. And verse 16, his mouth is most sweet. Both cases, the idea is that the lips or the mouth are that through which the words come. The words of Christ dwelling in our souls. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he who is called the Prince of Peace also bears the name Wonderful Counselor. For he is not only a king and a priest, but also as a prophet reveals the will of God unto our souls. And all of his words are peace and truth. It is these that are the sweet-smelling myrrh. They are those things that bring delight unto our souls, where we embrace the word of God as it is in truth, the word of Christ unto us. The sheep hear the voice of their good shepherd. Let me speak in the last place here about verse 14, where it speaks of his hands. Verse 14, his hands are as gold rings set with the barrel. I believe the barrel there, uh, as I looked into it, describes a precious stone with the appearance of the ocean. Let me read to you what Dr. Gill says there about his hands are as gold rings set with the barrel. Christ's hands, which are the instruments of action, may be compared to gold rings set with one or other of these stones because of the variety of his works in nature, providence, and grace, and because of the preciousness and value of them, and because of their perfection and completeness, the circular form being reckoned the most perfect, and never do the hands of Christ appear as thus described and look more beautiful and lovely than when he is beheld grasping and holding and retaining his people in their hands 
out of which they can never be plucked. This is what you must understand, Christian. That all of Christ's dealings with you, all that he does with his hands by way of action, it is for your sake. That is why his hands are adorned with gold and precious stones, because you understand that all of his ways toward you are peace. Where you see the final words of the woman here in verse 16. Yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Isn't it fully compatible with what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8? Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge Christ Jesus, my Lord. But let me close just with this thought that you see from this woman. She says, this is my beloved, this is my friend. Dear sinners, let me speak to you about the friendship of Christ. He comes to you in a friendly manner this morning. He holds forth the prospect of friendship. These things that are revealed here, if you have not experienced them, if you know him not according to the beauties set forth by the believing church confessed in Song of Solomon chapter 5, it is not because there is any unwillingness on his part to embrace you in friendship. No, he speaks in this way, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. He died sinners like you and I in order that we would be brought into this inseparable bond of friendship with the most glorious of persons. If you will come unto him in faith today, you can experience the very best of friendships, the closest of friends. You can be among those who believe and account Jesus Christ as precious. Amen.